0: Welcome to Software security Chet Chat, episode 192 for the 31st of March 2015. I'm Chester Wisneski coming to you live from Chet Chat Studio 2 in Vancouver, Canada. What went wrong with Studio 1, Chester? Uh, Studio 1 was a little too noisy today, so Studio 2 is a little more peaceful
1: because uh, there were some interesting background noises from both of our sides in the uh, Slovenian podcast birds chirping in the spring sunshine let's hope listeners
0: didn't mind too much having a bit of an al fresco chat chat last week we've got uh, a full docket of stories and and I, I guess beginning with uh this information leak at of of the G20 leaders uh visa applications and passports and all this stuff that when I read the story, it was all being blamed on autocomplete. I was a little bit confused because uh, you can't really have an autocomplete problem if you aren't handling sensitive information in a rather silly way to begin with. Um, By which we mean, of course,
1: that tendency of some mail clients, if so configured, that when you type J, assume you mean John or James or Jimmy and automatically fill in the whole email address and don't let you choose any further. Yeah, I I had exactly the same reaction as you. I don't really care who they sent it to. If he was sending it to someone else inside the organization in unencrypted email, what on earth are passport numbers doing in there? I'm not really that fussed about with a David Cameron's passport or
0: or Barack Obama's passport number in there. What if it were mine? Yeah, and and uh, the other piece of this, I guess, is the, uh, I guess, I don't want to call it laziness, but it feels that way sometimes, this, this idea that things need to be frictionless. So one of the ways I've personally been handling this is on my mail server that I operate at home. Uh, I set my attachment limit size quite small, so nobody's sending out large amounts of anything from my network. And if I need to send something to someone else, like, for example, I've done this a few times I know with you, Paul. Uh, We do the podcast, and sometimes I say, hey, uh, I'm going to share this podcast file with you. It's 70 megabytes. I don't email it to you, right? I, I put it out on a cloud, a personal cloud server where you can download it. Now, that requires an extra 30 seconds on my behalf instead of attaching it to an email message and just hitting reply to you. But the other side of that is that 30 seconds that I do that process makes me think about what I'm doing. It's no longer an accident. I have to consciously go, oh, this is a file I need to securely transmit to Paul. That extra effort makes your brain actually engage instead of just having this automatic click-click-send activity that we get in the habit of so often when we get ourselves in trouble. I prefer getting those files from you in that way because I get to choose the time that I retrieve
1: it, uh, so it doesn't get in the way of all my other, receiving all my other emails, most of which are much smaller. And I can just use a a regular downloader like curl or wget and get it in 15 different pieces if I want. Um, So just just from sheer practicality, it's better. Um, And the fact that it's not lying around in my email inbox, possibly forever.
0: Yeah, well, and and email boxes can get very, very large. I, I host a friend's email and I looked and he's done 27 gigabytes of email on my server this year. And I'm thinking, holy cow. If I limit people to two megabyte attachments, uh, what what on earth is this guy doing? But uh, you know, what, you're you're right about the efficiency of it, and a, a much more efficient way to transmit files for most of us Unix minded people is to use rsync. So why not try that? Yes, and maybe if you're really
1: fortunate, you'll find a uh, a, a Wi-Fi router in the hotel where you're staying, where you don't even need a
0: password. Right. And that's where this story, I guess, picks up is... uh, (laughs) The world's craziest bug. Strangely, we've had uh, a lot of Wi-Fi stories and a lot of hotel stories uh, for the last few months, right? I mean, we were talking not that long ago about the Marriott Hotel Group uh, trying to restrict people from using MiFi devices in their conference areas.
1: (laughs) This is kind of the other
0: way around, isn't it?
1: Instead of trying to restrict you from accessing the network or the router or the configuration data, they're actually making it as frictionless as possible.
0: Yeah, and I guess that's the really bad thing here is that the particular flaw in this case is public facing, right? Yes. Many times we talk about router flaws where you have to be on the inside and and it's just insecure to your friends, family, and neighbors. In this case, it's actually insecure the other way around. In fact, it's it's about as insecure as you could possibly design something. It's almost intentional.
1: Well, actually, it it's
0: so severe
1: that it can't possibly be intentional. Once you've determined that it's a vulnerable router type, you simply connect to TCP port 873 using an rsync client, and you can sync or download the entire filing system of the router including all configuration files, binaries, any other data, usernames and passwords that may be there and then once you've searched through all that data for the secrets that you'd like to get out so you can sell on the underground then you can make some configuration file modifications maybe put in a couple of modified executables like a, a hacked DNS redirecting server and just r them back in the other direction and thanks to the beauty of Rsync, which is A, on the fly, uh, B, automatic synchronization, and C, compressed, it's about the most efficient
0: way you could possibly hack a router. It's, it's good to know you don't need a lot of bandwidth, because I find when I'm on those hotel wireless networks, the bandwidth is usually quite awful. <laughs> it's nice to know that I can hack efficiently. It is amazing, Chester, that actually, if this
1: were a deliberate wide-open hole, paradoxically that would almost be better even though it would be the naughtiest thing in the world if they actually realized that it was there then at least there'd be some kind of an excuse you can imagine it was something that was put there to simplify the development process and just never removed how on earth can anything like this get past qa
0: well this is the importance of using uh these so-called hacker tools you know, Nmap, Metasploit, all these types of things, against your own devices. Those warning labels that say you're not supposed to use this to attack other people's systems, it's only for your own use. We really do mean it. You should be using these things against things you own. And if you're deploying things in your network, it's always a good idea as you put devices online to take a poke around and see what they do. I mean, many of these, uh, you know, uh, quote, Internet of Things devices that are coming out now I've been having a play with And it's shocking the number of them that, for example, listen for Telnet.
1: Yeah, having a Telnet server listening is a little bit like going out and buying a gramophone. It's not something that you'd expect somebody to be doing in the year of our Lord 2015.
0: Uh, Yeah, well, I guess we can leave it at that. Another thing, though, that I wasn't expecting to occur in 2015 or any time, really, is for legal agreements to seemingly go sideways due to things that are outside of both parties' control, you might say. Uh, uh, Unfortunately, Radio Shack, may at rest in peace, has ceased to exist in the form that we have uh, appreciated for so many years. It's sad, isn't it? Yeah, and I I have a lot of childhood memories of building radio kits and different things and going down to Radio Shack to pick up bits and pieces and parts and And part of that process for most Americans included uh, giving up some personal information. Radio Shack was quite adamant about sending out catalogs. They wanted you to have a a larger inventory to choose from than perhaps your local store may have had so that you could build those extra cool projects. And that meant they would ask you for things like your postal code and your address when you were buying things at the store so that they could uh, send you some direct marketing mail. Now, I loved getting the Radio Shack catalog, but I'm not sure I was prepared for what was coming next. Yes, my understanding is as part of the bankruptcy, now they've got all these assets.
1: And of course, I guess the the people who take over those assets, they want to try and make something back out of it so that they, they, they don't get absolutely nothing. Um, but the idea that they'll suddenly go, OK, well, we'll just make null and void all the privacy arrangements that you may have had with Radio Shack and we'll use this data for completely different purposes, maybe to sell you something completely different that you didn't want. It does just seem a step too far, doesn't it? And my understanding, is it two jurisdictions in the US, Texas and New York? The actual state regulators have said, you know, we're not we don't like this. We agree that this is a step too far. It'll be interesting to see how it pans out.
0: In in other news, the there there was another enforcement of the Canada anti-spam law uh against website plentyoffish.com. Uh I, I don't ever like to see companies um necessarily run afoul of the law, but the spam thing has really gotten out of control, and it's nice to see the Canadians are taking um, advantage of kind of a shot across the bow. In this case, it was $48,000, I think. It wasn't a, a giant amount of money to a, a very profitable operation like Plenty of Fish. But it does kind of send a clear message that we're kind of we're getting sick of being bombarded with email messages that we can't control.
1: Yes. And what's interesting in this case, Chester, is that although, you know, they claim they've got 90 million people signed up, uh, they claim they've got 3 million logins a day. So maybe you could argue that a penalty like 48,000 Canadian dollars is kind of a drop in the ocean ha, ha ha to them. But I guess, as you say, it's just that it's just making that point to remind everybody that there is a law and that, that everybody does have to comply, because my understanding in this case... The thing that they did wrong is that is simply that their unsubscribe feature was not working. That's not good enough. Uh, the law says there has to be a button, you have to be able to click it, and it has to work within 10 days. And so the penalty just is a kind of a shake-up and a reminder, I guess, more than actually a, a, a giant
0: financial penalty. It's made the headlines, and that in itself is good. Yeah, and I don't think anybody likes being called a spammer but maybe I should move along uh, to our last story, considering it is the final day of March as we're recording. And uh, as I think you put it very succinctly earlier, don't be an April fool. Uh, maybe now is a good time to check your backups and do another backup. And in fact, being the last day of the month, that's part of my ritual. I, I, last night, I went and logged into all my cloud services and, and uh, checked my cron jobs to be sure that my cloud backups were occurring um, as planned at the end of the month. and. I'm going to be fetching my hard drives from storage today and plugging them in to back up my server that's in the house, because uh, that's about my normal schedule. I try to do it once a month, and I think that's a good practice. Indeed, Chester. And if
1: the main reason over the last 12 months why you've become motivated enough to want to do backup is ransomware, good on you. That's a start. But the even better news that if you're doing backup because of ransomware, you are protecting yourself against so many other possible failures as well, including a laptop you drop on the floor, a hard disk that gets dropped in the harbour and fills up with salt water, a mobile phone that you leave behind in a taxi, a USB drive that gets stolen out of your pocket by some kind of crook in the street. All of those things can cause data to vanish from your presence that you really, really need and uh, backup really is your friend. The only important thing to remember along with doing the backup is it's a very, very, very good idea to encrypt it as you write it to the backup device. That way, if someone steals the backup, then they can't trawl through your data at their leisure.
0: Yeah, precisely. I was going to comment on that as well, and that I backup my cloud systems to Amazon S3 storage, but I run them through GPG on their way to the cloud so that they're protected. And I even encrypt the, the disks that I have plugged in directly to my server that I'll be doing my backups tonight uh, here in my house. Yes,
1: good reminder there, Chester, that if you have full disk encryption on your laptop or your mobile device, which we thoroughly recommend, because then you can't have individual files that you forgot to encrypt that encryption does get stripped off all at once, once you've logged in. So by default, even if you have full disk encryption on your laptop, when you copy individual files off, say to a USB drive or up into the cloud, they emerge from your encrypted disk unencrypted. So if you want them to be encrypted before they go into the cloud or before they're written to the USB disk, then you need to re-encrypt them on the way out. And although that sounds like a huge complexity, it isn't really. And it also means you can actually use different keys for your laptop and for the backup. So that if someone does compromise your laptop,
0: they can't then go and get
1: your backups and read all the stuff you had two years ago as well.
0: Well, on that note, we'll conclude Surface Security Chat Chat 192. As always, all of our podcasts are available on iTunes uh, via the TuneIn app. Uh, RSS, uh, and over at soundcloud.com slash security. For the latest security news, you can always stay up to date at https colon slash slash naked security dot dot com. And until next time, stay secure.